Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Nahum. Nahum lives a couple of doors down from Jonah to the right in your Bible. So he's, he's neighbors with Jonah, two houses over, if that helps you find it. I assume your Bibles are opening now to the book of Jonah since we spent several weeks there. We're going to be starting a new series today out of this uh, prophet who, who spoke in 7th century B.C. Uh, but before we get to, to the book of Nahum, um, I just want to tell you we had a great vacation. Uh, it was a time of gospel refreshment for me, seeing friends and family, fellow pastors. Uh, I came back tired, as you always do on vacation. Uh, but we had a great time as a family um, Thank you for your prayers. We are so glad to be back and kind of ready to enter into this next phase of what is God going to do in, uh, in our lives here at Grace? What's he going to do in our city as we move forward through the rest of summer into fall? I'm looking forward to what God has in store for us. Before we begin, Nahum, let me ask you a question. Have you ever really goofed up your life and had to deal with the consequences? Maybe it was sin Maybe it was something done to you. Maybe you just made a stupid decision and you had to live with the consequences. Let me invite you to come back tonight so you can learn how to pray if you find yourself in one of those situations. Our sermon title for tonight is How to Pray When You Goof Up and 185,000 People Want You Dead. Now, maybe you've never goofed up so much to that point, but King Hezekiah is going to teach us how to pray when we mess up our lives. Direct your attention now to Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. Hear the words of the living God. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkush. Let's pray. Father, we declare this morning that you alone are worthy of all glory. You are the God of the nations. And so we say glory in the highest, Father. It is a privilege, and I am humbled once again to stand before your people and under your word. And God, we need your word today. We need verse 1, and we need what it is telling us today. And God, in order for us to grasp that, we need you to send your Holy Spirit now to open our eyes, to see wonderful things out of verse 1, to incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to getting selfish gain. God, would you come and and begin changing us as we embark on this new prophetical book written so long ago, but so very appropriate for us today. Would you change us and transform us by your spirit, through your word, and would you do it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're beginning our new preaching series today, The Gospel According to Nahum, and I am very excited to be in this book. Nahum is a very interesting book. Don't be fooled by it, though, because on the surface, it may appear to have no relevance for the church today. This prophecy is very specific. It is very bloody. It is very graphic. 
You may be tempted to think that this book is too hard to understand, let alone apply to your life. I mean, I get that. I'm the one preparing these sermons. Nahum is a heavy, dark, gloomy book because it's foretelling the destruction of an entire city. I know this book is hard to grasp and apply, but this book is the word of God. Nahum is kind of like a book that you pull off your shelf and you have to blow the dust off. Nahum doesn't get much time in pulpits these days. Nahum doesn't get mentioned on Twitter. Nahum doesn't get mentioned on Facebook. Nobody is writing a book titled The Nahum Driven Life. His message is not exactly heartwarming. Most people don't turn to Nahum for their morning devotions. Most people don't read the following words from Nahum chapter 3 and get the warm fuzzies. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Nahum 3.3. Most people aren't doing dinnertime devotions out of this verse. Most people don't have this verse read at their wedding. But this is God's word. And while you may not want this as your wedding verse, because it might not be appropriate for a wedding, I I get that. We will soon discover that the book of Nahum is very appropriate for the pulpit today. Even more so as we are in an election year in our country. Nahum is is a gospel preacher, and we need to hear and heed his voice. So unstick those pages in your Bible. Let's blow the dust off Nahum. Our big idea that I've squeezed out of verse 1 is this, and you kind of have to read in between the lines. Here's our big idea for today. You can't legislate salvation. You cannot legislate salvation. What do I mean when I say that you can't legislate salvation? I mean that you can't make laws that procure a person's salvation. You can't create perfect Christian societies or countries. Let me say that again. You can't create perfect Christian societies. You can't create perfect Christian countries. We need to be reminded of this on the 1st of July because the 4th of July is coming. Only the Spirit of God through the preaching of the gospel can affect salvation in a sinner who is dead in sins. That's what I mean when I say that you can't legislate salvation. So hang on, I'm going to show you where I'm getting that in the text. I'm going to further explain it. But let's get some of the introductory issues out of the way. Let's talk about the book of Nahum before we dive in to the glorious Verse 1 that we've already read. The author is Nahum. We don't get any information on Nahum. We don't know if he's on Facebook or not. We don't know if he hates mayonnaise. I assume, being a godly preacher that he was, that he did hate mayonnaise. Thank you for that. We don't know anything about Nahum except his address, where he lives. He's an Elkishite. He's from the city of Elkish. That's all we know. Summary of the book of Nahum is this. The sovereign Lord... Yahweh, who is the divine warrior par excellence, would avenge the harm done to his covenant people 
by thoroughly judging and destroying their evil Assyrian oppressors. That's the summary of the book is that God is going to respond because his people have been brutally mistreated. Several key themes emerge from the book. God is the sovereign king and ruler of the universe. God is the divine warrior who avenges his people. God is the righteous judge before whom all nations must appear. And God is the zealous protector of his people. Just to let you know, all of these notes will be online. If you feel like you're writing feverishly, you can just sit back and relax and you don't have to get all, all of this will be available online on the church website later this week. Uh, the time that Nahum prophesied was sometimes between uh, mid to late 7th century BC. We can put Nahum's prophecy in this time period because of two factors, namely two cities. Uh, first is the city of Thebes. Nahum mentions the fall and the destruction of the Egyptian city Thebes in Nahum chapter 3 verses 8 through 10. Thebes was the capital city of Egypt and was a very important city for the worshipers in Egypt. They worshipped the god Ammon there. Numerous pharaohs and queens were buried in Thebes in the the valley of the kings, uh, the most famous being King Tut. This is a very prominent, important Egyptian city. And Thebes was sacked and destroyed by the Assyrians in 663 B.C. And Nahum mentions this destruction in chapter 3. So our starting point for a composition date is 663 B.C. The second city that will help us in determining a date is the city of Nineveh. Nahum's prophecy against Nineveh came true in 612 BC. We know that from history that the Medes and the Babylonians did a number on Nineveh in 612 BC. So we know that Nahum prophesied sometime between 663 BC and 612 BC. And that's about all we can say about it definitively. Sometime between there. Well, what was the setting of the book of Nahum? Why was the fall of the city of Nineveh so important. I mean, didn't we see in Jonah chapter 3 several weeks ago that the city of Nineveh repented and turned from their evil ways? Yes, we did. We saw that Nineveh turned and God said, I will not send my judgment because you have stopped doing the wicked things that you have done. But now we fast forward a hundred plus years later with Nahum's prophecy. It was important. It was good news. It was gospel, if you will, that Nineveh would fall if you were a Jew. Remember the Assyrians? They were a wicked people. What did they do to the people that they captured in war? They, they cut off their ears, gouged out their eyes, cut off their hands and feet, cut off their heads, made uh, towers of their heads, hung their heads in, in the trees like Christmas ornaments. These people were wicked. These people were evil. So it was good news to any Jew to hear that Nineveh was going down. They were public enemy number one for Judah. By the time of Nahum's prophecy, Assyria had been used by the Lord as an instrument of judgment on the northern kingdom Israel. They carted off the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel into exile, but the southern kingdom of Judah was still one of Assyria's subjects. So Nahum's prophecy was good news to God's people in Judah because finally the bad guys were going down. But what about Nineveh's repentance 
during the time of Jonah? Why are they now facing judgment from Yahweh, the sovereign Lord? Why does Nahum deliver a message of doom now? Because Nineveh forgot that you can't legislate salvation. Look at verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Nineveh did repent in Jonah's day. The book of Jonah said they did. Jesus said they did several times in the Gospels. But that repenting generation that Jonah preached to had passed away. The Ninevites that came after Jonah's message of grace did not keep with the previous citywide repentance of their forefathers. So there's a lesson to learn here. You cannot pass salvation to your children or to any person. Yes, we should be teaching our children about God and teaching them about his ways. We would affirm Psalm 145 verse 4 here. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. We value children here at Grace. If you haven't figured that out yet. If you don't like kids, this is not the church for you. Because we've got a lot of them here. Praise God. Children are part of the covenant family here at Grace. We want every child that comes through these doors to hear the gospel message and to respond. But we cannot make them Christians. We cannot set up rules in our homes that make our kids believers. That is the work of the third person of the Trinity. That is the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. But sometimes Christians forget that. And sometimes Christians think they can make their kids believers. That was the problem with some of the settlers of our nation. What happened when the founders of our country came over here from England? Besides running off my ancestors, the Native American Indians, that's a whole other sermon. I still got issues with that, okay? I'm recovering from that. Besides that, besides rebelling against the English government, that's a whole other sermon. And that's part of our problem today. We are rebels by birth. We are rebels because of what happened in Genesis 3. And we are rebels because we are rebels. Americans. This country was founded on rebellion, rebelling against the English government. And if you don't believe me that we're rebels by nature as Americans, get on Facebook and see what was said about our government officials this past week when something was passed that a lot of people didn't like. Listen, there is legislation that has been passed in this country that gives you freedom of speech. But higher than that law is the law in this book. You have freedom in this country to say what you want to say, but this book is a governor on your speech and what you say on Facebook, and with your co-workers, and as you gather around the water cooler. Yes, legislation has been passed to give you freedom of speech, but you are not free to say what you want to say, because this book is to govern your speech. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God. Can we say that after what we talked about this past week? 1 Peter 2.17, 
should be memorized by every Christian, by every American. Fear God and honor the king. Or to put it in our terms, fear God and honor the president. I got distracted. I'm going to get back to my notes. That wasn't in my notes. It's in our blood to rebel against the government. The early settlers of this country came over here and they had a misunderstanding of human nature and a misunderstanding of the gospel. Do you know your country's history? Do you, do you remember what happened at the Massachusetts Bay Colony? The, the early settlers came over to this country and they tried to legislate salvation. They tried to set up a world where church life and civil life were one. They tried to make laws and and make us a Christian nation. The Puritans living in the Massachusetts Bay Colony read themselves back into the Old Testament. They saw themselves as Israel. England was Egypt. The king was Pharaoh. The new land here in America was the promised land. And the Native American Indians were the Canaanites that they were supposed to drive out. These early American settlers believed that they were in a special covenantal relationship with God just like the Israelites. They wanted a world where church and civil life were mixed, just like in ancient Israel. They wanted to unify church and state. So to be involved politically back then meant that you were involved in the church. They read their existence as the Massachusetts Bay Colony back into Old Testament text, and it created all kinds of problems. Why? Because human depravity will always creep in and cause collapse. We're sinners. And where sinners are, there's always sin. Learn a lesson from history. You can't legislate salvation. The Massachusetts Bay Colony tried and failed. Why? Because they started having kids They started having sinners. The offspring of these settlers grew up and they did not all experience conversion. Their kids grew up and rejected Jesus and did not want to live a gospel-centered life. The early settlers wanted to escape the clutches of England and be a city on a hill and to be a Christian society. They wanted a totally redeemed society. The problem is that it never works. It's always doomed to failure. Even John Calvin couldn't pull it off in Geneva in his day. So much so that the leaders exiled him for several years. Why? Because you eventually have kids and they grow up and they want to have nothing to do with that old time religion. You can't legislate salvation. You can't legislate conversion. You can't make rules that cause a person to experience regeneration. You can't make laws and rules that cause a person to be born again. You cannot pass conversion down to the next generation. You can't pass faith down. 
You share the faith. You pass the faith down. You pass the gospel down. You share the truth of the gospel. But remember, faith is a work brought about by the Spirit of God. God is the one who brings about redemption, not your father, not your mother. You can preach, you can encourage, you can weep, you can plead, you can beg, you can pray, you can live a gospel-centered life, and please hear me, do all of these things, but you can't bring anyone to faith. This was the problem in Geneva with John Calvin, who I hold highly. This was the problem with the early settlers in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They were trying to do through natural means that which is supernatural. Faith is supernatural. It comes from your heavenly father, not your earthly father. And that's why Nahum is prophesying. That's why Nahum is prophesying the downfall of Nineveh. The king of Nineveh tried a citywide campaign of repentance in Jonah's day, and it worked. But as time went by, the subsequent generations went back to their forefathers' ways prior to the repentance. I think D.A. Carson hits the nail on the head when he says the first generation has the gospel, The second generation assumes the gospel and the third generation loses the gospel. And that's why we talk about the gospel all the time here because we want it to stick. It was true of Geneva. It was true of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It was true of Nineveh and it was true of Judah. This was Israel's history too. What happened to the first generation that went into the promised land under Joshua's leadership? They experienced the Lord's blessing, but other generations turned away from Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. See, this is Israel's history. This is why Nahum feels the burden of his message. Look again at verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Hebrew word here for oracle, Massah, I think is better translated burden. And some of your translations capture it that way. I think it's better worded, the burden concerning Nineveh, the burden of Nineveh. This message of the downfall and destruction of Nineveh was a burden for Nahum. It was a very weighty and solemn message that he had to deliver. It was Nahum's burden to bear. Now you may be thinking, I thought you said Nineveh was a wicked city and that every Jew wanted them to be wiped out. And the Assyrians were ruthless and cruel monsters. Wouldn't Nahum and any Israelite Or anyone in Judah, be happy that this city is going down? Yes and no. Yes, the God-fearing people in Judah would have on one hand been happy that the Lord was taking Nineveh down. They were their enemies. It's the Hatfields and the McCoys here. But at the same time, any God-fearing person, while happy that their enemies are being taken out, should have a sense of sadness that these people don't know the Lord. And I think that's why Nahum's message was a burden to him. He was prophesying the death of an entire city. In fact, Nahum's prophecy is very unique because it is solely devoted to the destruction of an entire city. 
Nahum feels the burden and the weight of his message because he knows there are little toddlers learning to walk in Nineveh who are going to be wiped out. He knows that there are nursing mothers in Nineveh who are going to be wiped out. He knows that there are little eight-year-old boys playing football in the streets of Nineveh who are going to be wiped out. And they don't know the Lord. So I believe that Nahum felt this tension. Happy that their enemies would no longer threaten them, but sad that people would die not knowing the Lord. But I also believe that it was a burden for Nahum to deliver because he was reminded too that there were people left in Judah who were Israelite by birth, but were not really serving the Lord. He knew that there were people in the covenant community who were not really in covenant with the Lord. And it's the same in any church today. There are people here, like in many churches, who belong to the covenant community, the church. There are people that are in the community, but not in the community. And that's a burden for any pastor or church member or mom or dad to bear. We all know someone who may or may not come to church but that are totally lost and separated from the Lord. If you take anything away from this sermon today, I pray you take away a burden for the lost, a burden for the lost in this city, a burden for the lost even here in this church, a burden for the kids that will come to VBS that have heard the gospel a million times and a burden that it'll click and that the Spirit of God will open their eyes in a few weeks, a burden for your neighbors and coworkers and family members. Because the reality is that the people that don't know Jesus, just like us prior to our conversion, if we're Christians, they are dead in their sins. If they have not repented and trusted in Jesus spiritually, they're dead. The fact of the matter is that we're all born sinners and that we're all born dead in our sins. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were born dead in in sin. Dead, dead, dead. And that's why you can't legislate salvation. Because we are all born dead, 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 dead in sin. We cannot bring ourselves up out of this spiritual death. It takes somebody with a capital S. It takes somebody outside of us to raise us up to spiritual life. Did any of us have a say when we were born into this world? Were any of you consulted by your parents before you were born? None of us had a say as to whether or not we were created. And in the same way, nobody has a word in whether or not they are recreated spiritually. Nobody has a say in whether or not they are born again. It is a supernatural work of the Spirit. Understand this. Grace is not your ability to choose. Grace is not your capability to choose. Grace is God acting and choosing. You cannot create yourself physically and you cannot recreate yourself spiritually. Let me say it again because I want you to grasp that truth. Grace is not 
your ability or your capability to choose. Grace is God acting and God choosing and God raising you up from the deadness of your sins because you cannot create yourself physically and you cannot recreate yourself spiritually. And that's why you can't pass faith down to your kids or to anyone. God must do the work of drawing them to himself through the supernatural work of the Spirit of God as they hear the gospel message. We are guilty. We are not guilty by choice. We are guilty as sinners because of Adam's sin. And that rubs us the wrong way as Americans. No taxation without representation is what we cry. And because that's in our blood, we transfer that mentality to original sin. No condemnation without representation. I wasn't in the garden with Adam. Why am I guilty? but we were with Adam. In Adam, we all died spiritually. But the good news of the gospel is that just as Adam was our representative, so too is Jesus. Just as you weren't in the garden, you weren't on the cross either. Christian, you were guilty in Adam in the gospel, and you are righteous in Christ. In the, you were guilty with Adam in the garden. Get that right. You're guilty with Adam in the garden, but Christian, you are righteous in Christ in the gospel. Condemnation with representation. That's Genesis. That's the Garden of Eden. You weren't there physically, but you were there in Adam justification with representation. That's the gospel. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. That's Calvary. Things have been done on your behalf, both in Adam and in Christ. Adam messed you up. Jesus fixes you. That is the gospel. And that's why you can't legislate salvation. Salvation has to be done to you from outside you. You can't be born into it. And that's why Nahum is prophesying to Nineveh. Because the repentance of the previous generations did not stick. Why? Because you can't pass conversion down to your kids. You can't make yourself or anyone believe the gospel. Only God can. That's what these elements represent here today. The body and blood of Jesus. He came because we couldn't save ourselves. He came to represent us just as Adam represented us. Jesus came to represent us through his life, death, and resurrection just as Adam represented us through his eating of the fruit of that tree and the physical and spiritual death that followed. The gospel message is that in Adam, you are born dead in sin and deserve to be punished forever in hell because you have rebelled against God through either unrighteousness or your man-made righteousness. And by that, I mean our belief in our inherent goodness. We think we're all pretty good. 
but our goodness is bad. You are inherently bad. You are corrupt. You are dead in Adam. But in Christ, you can be made alive. And some of you have because you're Christians. And for those who aren't, you can be made alive today in Christ. You can escape the wrath to come and be made new. And God will forgive your sins. He will cleanse you. He will adopt you into his family. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will shower you with his love. And he will start a process of transformation, the likes of which you could never, ever, ever do on your own. And it's free. It's free. Will you repent? Will you turn from your sins today? Say, God, I believe what Benji's saying. I am a rebel and a sinner by birth. And and Adam's sin affected me. But I believe that what Jesus did is greater. I believe he is my representative. Will you turn from your sins today and escape the wrath to come? It's free. We all love something that's free, don't we? Don't we love something that's free? We do. On vacation, we went to a a water slide with our family, and someone paid our way because their family owned the, the water slide, and they closed the park the last few hours. And just about 30 of us got to just have the whole water park to ourselves, and our kids loved it. And then word spread, hey, all the food and drink is free too. And we had already bought our food, but that's a whole nother. But I looked at my six-year-old Asher, and I said, Asher, you see that little stand over there? See that, that building? You can go over there and get anything you want to eat and drink for free. And I listed off a few things that they had, and he looked at me and he said, For for free? It's free, Daddy? It's free, son. All you gotta do is go. And he did. And he brought back a big thing of nachos and a Coke that was half the size of him. (laughs) It's a picture of the gospel. It's free. You want to have your conscience cleansed and washed of the life that you've lived? If you're a Christian, you can have a clean conscience today because of Jesus. Maybe you came here and you're like, you know what, I've been searching for meaning and purpose in my life. You were created by God to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the gospel is free. It's free. Will you believe today? Will you fess up and admit that you've lived your own way, your own life, you've rebelled against a holy God, you've broken his commandments? Will you admit that and feel sorrow in your heart and repent and say, God, please forgive me? And then will you believe that Jesus came and died on the cross and he took the punishment that you deserved because of the kind of life that you lived and and because you were born dead in sin, will you come today? He's calling out to you. Repent and believe because the gospel is free. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love. The great love with which you loved us in sending your son We could never, ever do it on our own. We could never be made right with you. We could never 
make things right, Father, even in our own made-up goodness, we know it's bad. Only your son Jesus is perfect. So thank you for sending him, Father. And thank you for us Christians here today that we can come to this table to eat and to drink and to celebrate the peace that we have with you through your Son. And for those who are here, Father, that don't know you, would you grant them repentance leading to life even now? And may you be glorified today, Father, as we focus on and relish in and absolutely love and adore the life and death and resurrection of your son as represented in these elements. Would you be glorified as we focus our attention on Jesus? Would you empower us by your grace and give us a burden for those that don't know you and help us to take the gospel to them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.